Friends online, I forgot to welcome you this morning, and I hope that you feel gathered and part of our community today. We take this minute and remember you, and despite the fact that you're not present with us this morning, you're present with us in spirit, so thank you. And I'm going to give you a gift today. I'm not going to stand here in front of the camera, so you don't have to see me the whole time, and you're welcome, by the way, for that, but... This feels like one of those messages that requires uh, closeness. And this morning, I'm really mindful. Everybody seems like they're so far away. So I'm going to come down here and talk today and not worry about that. If you're online, you can watch the screen. And I encourage you to, to that, that screen where there's a picture of the sanctuary that you would find yourself here among us today. So several years ago, I was invited to speak at a, a Mennonite college uh, conference. And the week ended with a, uh, a gathered meeting, a worship service at a, the local Mennonite church. And as I was going into the sanctuary, there was a plaque on the wall, just as you're walking inside, and it said, uh, it was a quote from Philemon chapter six, that said, I pray that everyone who meets you We'll see how wonderful it is to live in Christ. I pray that everyone who meets you will see how wonderful it is to live in Christ. Don't you love that? It's so beautiful. It's such a high aspiration. They hung it there as a reminder to themselves of who God had called them to be and how God had called them to be in the world. Now, as far as I can tell, this is the most horrendous translation of Philemon 6 that I've ever found. I mean, I've read the Bible a lot, and so it's always shocking to, to meet up with a verse that you go, I've never seen that before, and this is one I've absolutely never seen. So I, when, I, when I went back to my hotel, I started digging around to try to find what English translation did they find that from. I couldn't find it anywhere. So I, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but I went back to the Greek and tried to, figure, to reconstruct it that way and realized this had almost no correlation at all to uh, what the Greeks said. So I talked to, um, well, why the person chose Philemon 6, I have no idea to, to use that first. I thought, why not just create your own new book and chapter verse? Why not have 1 Tim Timmerton 4-7 or Leclerc 3-16? You just come up with something wildly new rather than replace it with a so I reached out to one of my friends who attends the church. I said, tell me about this. And he said, yeah, we know. He's like, we don't know why he chose Philemon 6, but we just loved it so much. We loved what that message was. And so we decided that we wanted to keep it there so that it might be true of our life together. And to me, it's hard to argue with that. And so I carried that message with me since then, the picture of it on my phone to think about what are the implications of that for my life and our life together here, and even the broader Quaker community that I have the privilege of serving. What would it mean for people who meet us to see us and say, how wonderful it must be to live in Christ? So when people encounter us, do they gain a glimpse of that? Is anybody captured by the glory of God? Which in the Hebrew is sometimes described as the weight of God, the weight of God's presence. That's 
one of the ways that we define what glory is, the weight of God's presence living in us, and us living within that and under that presence. Does anybody see God's glory having been among us? Or to say it another way, that when folks encounter us, does anybody look at us and say, I see Jesus? Or did they just say, oh Jesus? <laughs> right? The, the idea about this is kind of laughable, isn't it? At least maybe with some of us, that the church can be something that wonderful. Often we hear people talk about how they've been harmed and hindered by the church more than been helped by it as a pathway to actually experiencing God and an authentic sense of spirituality. But that's not my perspective. I absolutely love the church. I believe in it, in its possibility, in its promise, in its potential, and actually as a necessity to what it is that God wants to do in the world. It's integral to knowing Christ and being able to live out his mission in the world. And if you're part of this fellowship, you're actually part of a movement, a historic movement, that's believed in the same possibility, maybe even more strongly than I have. That when we come together as the people of God, we are formed, we are gathered in Christ, we are formed into a people who are meant to reflect his presence, his character, his way, his will, um, in how we live and in who we are. We're called into a community that's marked by righteousness, that is, a right relationship, not only with God, but with one another, within ourselves, and with the creation. And as we seek the life and power of Christ together, as we are each doing it, that's the place where we find this unity that transcends our diversity doesn't eradicate it, but it enables us to actually come together and to be joined together in a community that has a sense of shared purpose, shared life. You see, we are part of, early friends said, of a, of a theocracy, not a democracy. The rule of the theos, of God, rather than the demos, the people. And so we are this group of people who live, learning, are learning, struggling together to learn how it is that we yield ourselves to this one who is our head. And they believe that we have this absolutely revolutionary message, right? That God not only can transform my life, hopefully, and yours, but our life together. And that's so powerful that it sends us out in the world so that we might be these agents of change, these ministers of reconciliation in the world that is so broken sometimes. And so we are a fellowship of ministers, a community of ministers, all of us, each one gifted, each one called to serve, each having a role in this life together. And they believed that this was not only uh, possible, but it was promised for those who would really to partner with what God is seeking to do through them in the life and power that is available to us because of the presence of Christ. Well, this vision is partly what drew me to friends. I wanted to be a part of a church that understood itself that way because as I was reading the Bible, as I was reading church history, as I was trying to pray, that just seemed 
It just seemed to resonate so deeply that that's what church is. It's not an event, it's not a building, it's not an organization, but it's a people on this shared journey with God. And over the last few years, I've been especially drawn to the experience of living under the weight of God's presence and what it might mean for us for God's glory to be revealed in us and through us to others who we might meet along the way. And having done that, they might look at us and say, how wonderful it must be to be in Christ. And I'd like to be a part of that. Well, as, I began, as we begin looking at different ways, which we're going to do over the next several months, different ways that Scripture talks about church, um, I want to start with Ephesians chapter 3, which is a passage that has long baffled me. We're going to start at verse 14. I encourage you this week to go back and read Ephesians, the whole book, maybe, but at least chapter 3. This is Paul's prayer for the church in Ephesus. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays like he wants and expects this to happen. And he has this crazy notion that God's glory will be revealed in the church. I mean, what a dumb idea, right? Has he never met Larry Hampton? <laughs> or Noel Carey? How hard they are to get along with. How hard it is to be in community with one another, see? I, you only have me for seven months. What are you going to do, fire me if I make fun of you every Sunday morning? But in people like you and me, Paul prays, Paul expects, Paul cajoles and encourages the church in Ephesus and beyond them, us, to think about how it really is that God's glory gets revealed in us. Well, I've been thinking about all this lately um, because in my real job, I get to work with all different kinds of congregations and denominations who are wrestling with this, these very questions. We're coming out of COVID. Church has been in decline. And we're having to wrestle with issues about how, what we're called to do, who we're called to be, how we're all going to make it work at a time when volunteerism is down, um, when, when attendance is down, when revenue is down. It's a terribly, terribly interesting time to be part of the church. And lots and lots of people are doing some really good work thinking about this. Asking questions like, why do we exist? And how do we go about it in our time and place? What makes a church distinct from 
a, a social justice advocacy group, or a community center, or a club, or a service organization, or a political party? Is there something that makes us distinct? Well, I'm pretty convinced that part of the answer to this, part of what's crucial, is this notion that God is present within us. That God's glory is actually showing up and being shown in and through us. Now, the church in Ephesus is a pretty small little house church, right? In a community of about 250,000 people. In those days, citizens lived under the heavy, threatening hand of the Roman Empire. Through the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome, peace was enforced, but it was enforced with the sword. And it was kept with the threat of violence and suppression and domination. And citizens were encouraged to remember who they belonged to, which was not God, but the emperor. And nationalism was incredibly strong. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? And as we know, reading the Bible, divisions were really severe and strong between different groups of people. They were intense and seemingly impenetrable. And there was a disproportionate gap between the classes in terms of wealth and power and all of those human things. But in the midst of this reality, there's a new community that's forming, made up of Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, slave and free, rich and poor, male and female, Roman citizens, and people living under uh, occupation. In this divided world, people were coming together to establish what one writer called a sociological impossibility, a movement without analogy at that time. What they were creating, or better, what was being created in them and through them uh, was a puzzle to others who were watching. It was something they hadn't seen before. And through what Paul calls, earlier in chapter 3, he calls the manifold wisdom of God, he recognizes that God is at work in this community, reconciling and redeeming all who are willing through the life, death, resurrection of Christ. God's healing the brokenness and division among humanity through this unifying peace and power and presence of spirit as Christ is understood to be in all and and all. And finally, God is unseating and disempowering uh, those human rulers and authorities who imagine themselves to be in control and in charge of everything. God is saying, no, there is one Lord, and it's Christ. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that reality eventually. But just to keep reading the Bible, though, it doesn't end with Jesus. It continues on through this new community that is being formed. That's the mystery, right? Jesus didn't write a book. He didn't, um, he didn't launch an ad campaign. He didn't offer an online course. He didn't hold a retreat. He didn't create a political party or a nonprofit service agency. He formed a community. That was his way. Why? I have no idea, some of you. But that was his way. A community where his presence is felt, where those who abide in him are empowered and animated 
and led as they recognize that he's the teacher, he's the guide, he's the Lord, he is king, he is master. And in those days, the community grows. As people experience the life-changing power of God's love, love that's sacrificial, love that's practiced, love that's revealed in some fairly incredible ways, as, and as the ministry of Jesus gets carried out in extraordinary ways by otherwise ordinary people, these small little fellowships began to gain people's attention. Did it happen perfectly? Of course not. They had earlier versions of Larry Hampton and Noel Kim. It didn't happen perfectly. But along the way, despite those realities, God's glory gets revealed. And people see, they gain a glimpse, at least a glimpse, of just how wonderful it is to live in Christ. So how does God's glory get revealed through us? Help me here. <laughs> right? We all know what we've been at this long to know it's neither simple or, um, or easy. While I believe that it's both a gift we receive and a grace that we inhabit, it's also a life we practice. And it's a discipline that we, um, that we live in. But it can't be a hobby. And it's not something we dabble in, we tickle our toes in. It's, a, it's an immersion. It's a baptism into a whole new way of existing. And it's about being remembered and connected to one another in ways that are new. If you take nothing else from the message today, I would like you to go away thinking about the word in. Paul uses it to talk about how there's glory in the church. My lousy Mennonite translator talked about how wonderful it is to live in Christ. The church, I'm convinced, is about living in. Not looking at, not focusing on, or even following after, but living in the power and presence of Jesus. We're a fellowship on a shared journey in God, which enables us to become an authentic community of ministers, which allows us to understand what it actually might mean to follow Jesus faithfully and to love each other deeply and to continue his work and witness in the world. All of that, I think, is how we're empowered, um, but makes it an authentic possibility. Now, I've not given you anything practical to take home, something to do, but I believe it changes practically everything to understand that it's about going inward and going deeper with God and with one another in this shared journey. And as we do, I remain convinced that the glory of God gets revealed and people start to look at us differently and think about just how wonderful it might be to know and live in Christ. A book I read recently was uh, 
by an author named Leslie Newbigin who wrote uh, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society. And this came at a time when the church was trying to figure out some stuff about who it was, what's our role in the world, especially as we, we recognize that um, our communities are just very different, right? We, they're just very different. We, we live with other people who don't share our values or beliefs. Sorry, didn't mean here. Newbigin, um, I like that what he talks about here because I think he's on to something really important. I'm going to read a little bit longer quote. He says, Yet I confess that I've come to feel that the primary reality of which we have to take account in seeking for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. He says, That's really important. You might go to the next slide. Thank you. How is it possible, he says, that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic, that hermeneutic is sort of the way we apply and, and um, interpret reality or truth. The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. So when we talk about authenticity of the message, when we talk about um, is any of this really true, he's saying that the, the, the way that we prove it is by being able to point to a community of people that are living it out in some small way at least, where the glory is at least revealed in part, where some of the wonder is captured. He goes on to say that I don't, I'm not denying that there's other incredibly valuable ways in which we make a difference in the world. I'm just saying, he says, I think the, the most crucial is through what happens in communities just like ours. And my problem is, I actually believe that. And I believe this stuff that we're talking about here. In part, not because I've read it in a book, but because I've seen it. Seen it in congregations around the world. I've seen it here. I see the difference it can make. And so I, like Paul, pray for it. And as I read the Bible and try to listen to the Spirit, um, I've come to believe that it's absolutely integral to our self-understanding of what it means to be the church. And despite the risks involved, despite the inevitable frustrations, despite the possibility that we might be disillusioned along the way, just as it is with love, I believe the risk is worth it. Right? If you don't risk love, you never experience its wonder. If you don't risk being church, maybe we don't ever experience its power. Well, that's part of what we're going to talk about together over the next several months. How do we do this? How is God calling us to do this? As we enter into time of worship, I remind you that we are a deep community of ministers, and God speaks to through to and through all of us. And you may be led to share a message this morning. You may be led to think more deeply about a message that God is speaking.